Well, good morning, Kitsap House. It is so good to be with you. What an honor uh, and what a delight. I hadn't turned around uh, yet, and to turn around and see a room full of folks, it is so great to see you thriving in your uh, life of community uh, together. It is my honor to run one leg of the Rebecca Hackman uh, relay race. Uh, and uh, so I, I, and I'm, I've been preceded by some three great preachers. I had a chance to listen online to Christian as he talked about the ministry that you're partnering with in Alpha, and then Paige uh, and the ministry you are partnering with in World Relief. And then I got to listen to your homegrown preacher, Stephanie, who was powerful uh, talking about her ministry that you're partnering with in the local school district. So uh, that is good stuff that you're receiving every week. And, and uh, so it's my honor to step up and talk about a partnership that you have with us as your sister congregation in the ministry of church planting. I'm actually going to save that kind of toward the end, and I'll, I'll lay the foundation for, for why we are continuing to be committed to uh, church planting. Uh, I hope you'll, you'll get the gist of it here as we make our, our way through. I want to start uh, my uh, message this morning by taking another look at the theme verse uh, that you are referring to that Pastor uh, Larry already mentioned today. It comes out of Jeremiah 29:17, and I want to read it to you. Uh, you've probably heard it several times. I'm going to read it one more time. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. He said, Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, for in its shalom is your shalom. Let me read it one more time. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, for in its shalom is your shalom. For generations, the people of Israel had lived in radical disobedience to the Lord. Unfailingly, he would send prophet after prophet telling them how he wanted to clean, them to clean up their act, but God's chosen people were so persistently wicked that their uh, corrections never took. They were always returning to lives of selfish idolatry. And finally, the Lord had had enough. After hundreds of years of this, the Lord had had enough. And so he delivered judgment upon them in the persons of the Babylonian Empire. You've heard of King Nebuchadnezzar. He invaded Israel. They defeated their armies, burned down their temple, tore down their city wall, which was a source of identity to every city. And it, as it was the practice of the time, took thousands of them into captivity, took them back to Babylon. And there were a couple of reasons for this. First of all, it completely impoverished the, the country that they left behind. They were but a shell of what they had been before they were in rebellion against Babylon. And secondly, the, the purpose of that, the intent of that, was that they would indoctrinate their captives into the ways of their kingdom. It was, it was their way of immersing them into Babylonian culture, usually the brightest and the best that they had. Jeremiah warned that this was going to happen. He told them, if you don't clean up your act, God is going to take you into captivity. And he warned them that that captivity would last for 70 years. 70 years. Um, but no one believed him. They had false prophets who said, nah, there, there will be a little problem, but it'll be a two-year stint, and then we'll be able to return home. But the false prophets were wrong, and Jeremiah was right, and it was going to be a long haul, 70 years so then, how should these thousands and thousands of Jews, how should they behave in captivity? 
How should they treat the enemies that had stolen them from their homes, had destroyed their most precious cultural and religious treasures, and enslaved them in a foreign land? How should they behave? Should they protest? Maybe they should carry out a a guerrilla warfare, uh, sabotaging their enemies every time they have an opportunity. And Jeremiah's admonition to them was actually shocking. He said, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, for in its shalom is your shalom. That word shalom is the only Hebrew word most Americans know, right? You've heard it. And of course, Pastor Larry said it means peace, but way more than that, it means wholeness and contentment and and welfare. In fact, some translations of this verse read this way, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I want to be really clear in understanding what's going on here. Jeremiah, who was a Jewish prophet, was telling his Jewish listeners to seek the welfare of their enemies, their captors, the people who had kidnapped them and transported them hundreds of miles away. The Jews were not to subvert their enemies, they were to bless their enemies. It was an astounding thing. It is perhaps the most counterintuitive thing that you would imagine a prophet would say in such a time. He says, don't rebel, don't subvert, don't undercut, don't destabilize, don't overthrow. No, he says, seek the welfare of your captors. Seek the welfare of the city full of your enemies. Bless them and bring peace to the city. Help the city to prosper. It was utterly counterintuitive for a people who considered themselves separate from and spiritually superior to every other kingdom that surrounded them. But this was God's call for them in this moment of their existence. And I think more importantly, it is a prophetic glimpse of something that Jesus would one day teach His disciples hundreds and hundreds of years later. So I want to read for you this morning a passage from Luke's gospel, and I'd like you to listen very carefully to it because I believe it, came, it contains the quintessentially t- uh, uh, Christian teaching. The quintessential teaching of Jesus is, I think, contained in this passage. So uh, it's the summation, I think, of what Jesus made Jesus' message utterly unique. So I'm going to see if you can spot it. There will be a, a test following the reading. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to start with verse 27. Luke 6, 27, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And then drop down to verse 37. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so did you you spot it? What is the quintessentially Christian verse that we find in this passage? Maybe you would say it was verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Recognize that? 
What, what do we call that? The golden rule. We recognize it better in King Jimmy's version, which most of us were raised on, that it goes like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's a powerful, powerful teaching, and it is not the core Christian teaching. If that was your answer, you're wrong. Uh, first of all, many other religions taught something very similar to this, although they normally did it in the negative. They would say, do not do to others what you would not have done to you. And it came to be known, seriously, as the silver rule. It was good, but not as good as gold. But this teaching, this idea, uh, was not unique to Jesus, first of all. More significantly, the golden rule is ultimately self-serving. The golden rule is ultimately self-serving. I treat others how? I treat them the way I want them to treat me. That, that personal benefit is the motivation and the measure behind the golden rule. So it's good stuff. It's a wise way to live. But it is not the most Christian teaching in that passage. I think the ultimate summation of Christianity comes right in verse 27. Are you ready? Here it is. Love your enemies. Let's say it together. Love your enemies. That is the summation of Christianity. That is the summation of Jesus' ministry. Love your enemies. This is, interestingly, the first time. It's in Luke 6. This is the first time that the word love appears in Luke's gospel. And it's surprising for us because... The first time love is mentioned, Jesus doesn't say, love God. He doesn't say, love your neighbor. He doesn't say, love your family. The first time the word love appears in Luke's gospel, it's love your enemy. There's nothing self-serving about that. It's not love others so that they might love you. No, the outrageous demand of Jesus, the ultimately Christian teaching is love your enemy. As I said, lots of religions offer some version of the golden rule, but no one, so far as we can tell, in all of history had ever taught anything like this, and certainly not the, the Jewish scholars. They would have considered this to be an outrageous uh, demand. And I'm not sure how, uh, if we can comprehend, especially at that point in their history, just how outrageous, because I want you to remember, Jesus' listeners were living in occupied territory. The, their, their land had been invaded about a century earlier. They, they had intruders who could enter their house at will, intruders who could take their property without recourse, who could assault their family without consequence, who could compel them to serve without compensation. They were at their mercy, and those invaders had little in the way of mercy. When Jesus said, love your enemies, you could have just put the word Romans right in, in that spot, because that's who he was talking about particularly. Love these Romans who have occupied your, your country for a hundred years, who have pilfered your treasury, desecrated your holy place, stolen your property, raped your women, enslaved your children. Love those brutes who gaze upon you with undisguised contempt. These intruders who have stolen four generations of freedom, who have impoverished you, who have made your life miserable. These foreigners that you all hate, Jesus said, love them. Wow. 
We don't live in occupied territory right now, but we still have enemies, don't we? And I wonder if there's anyone who came to mind when you heard Jesus speak this word to you through His Spirit, love your enemy. What person's face popped into your memory? What is the person who has harmed you or slandered you or betrayed you or abused you or used you? Is it a business partner who did you dirt? Is it a a mean ex, a cruel father, a bully at your school or in your workplace? Our enemies may not occupy our cities or our homes, but they occupy our thoughts, don't they? And they occupy our nightmares, and that's bad enough. That's outrageous enough, and Jesus says, yeah, them too. I want you to love them too. So how can we possibly comply with this outrageous demand of Jesus, this outrageous expression of love? I think the text reveals a couple of principles that we must understand if we're going to take Jesus seriously. And if we're His disciples, we're supposed to take Him seriously. So if we do, we, we need His help to understand how to do this. Here's a couple of things. What kind of outrageous love loves an enemy. First of all, it is volitional and not emotional. It is volitional love. It is not emotional love. You are good Greek scholars, I'm sure all of you, and you are aware that there are many words in Greek for love. There is eros, which means erotic love. There is phileo, which means brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, or, or that might also mean family love, familial love. And if these were the only two choices that we had, then, then Jesus' command to love our enemies would be outrageous. It would even be grotesque, wouldn't it? Because obviously we have no erotic love for our enemy, and we certainly have no warm affection for them. But that's not what Jesus was asking. He used another word, probably the only Greek word lots of Christians, American Christians know, which is agape. Say it, agape. Agape love. That's the word that is used in the Greek here, agape. And agape is a verb. It is not a noun. Agape is an action love. Agape has nothing to do with our feelings or our emotions and everything to do with our will. When Pastor Megan gets up in the middle of the night to change Rebecca's dirty diaper and to feed her, that's agape, especially when she's utterly exhausted herself. It is love and action. When Jesus died on the cross, He didn't feel like doing it. The the love that so loved the world that He sent His only Son, He didn't feel like doing it. In fact, we know just the contrary because we've listened in on His prayers in Gethsemane when He begged the Lord not to make Him do this, but agape love drove Him to do it anyway. Jesus isn't asking us to like our enemies or to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward them. And, by the way, He isn't asking us to return to abusive relationships, but He is commanding us to love in action. And and then He gives us a list, and I read the list to you. Here's examples of what it looks like to love your enemy. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't retaliate against those who harm you. 
Offer more to someone who takes advantage of you. Give generously to someone who will never pay you back. Forgive someone who has no right to be forgiven. There, you just had a long list from Jesus of what it means to agape, even an enemy. Those are powerful, action-oriented, verbal phrases. Do good, bless, pray, give, give generously, forgive, forgive generously. Agape demands that you do not what you feel like doing, but often precisely what you do not feel like doing. That's agape love. Turn the other cheek. Have you ever tried it? I have, and it's not that fun. One evening back in the 80s when I was an assistant pastor at a church down in California, I came late to a committee meeting one night, and I was late because I was a member of another committee that I was obliged to attend. And so when I walked in late to that meeting, one of the elders, who was never really that taken with me, he complained about my tardiness in a pretty snarky way, and I was snarky right back. I said, well, if you get me off of the other committee, I'll be here on time for this one. And my insolence so infuriated this man that he stood up, leaned across the table, and slapped me right across the face. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. He, he hit me so hard that the people who were meeting in the next room heard it. And it took all the self-control I had not to just punch him right in the nose. So I can't really say that I offered the other cheek, but I certainly got the first cheek's worth. However ill your feelings might be toward your enemy, you can choose not to retaliate. You can choose to be kind. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. You can choose to speak well of them when you're tempted to malign them. You can choose to remain silent if you can't speak well of them. You can choose to pray blessing on them when you would rather rain down fire upon their heads. You could choose to send a note of appreciation even when they criticize you incessantly. You could choose not to strike back, not to file a lawsuit. You can even choose to forgive. What you feel toward your enemy is not the point of agape. What you do despite those perfectly appropriate feelings, is the point. Loving your enemy is about what you do. It is not about what you feel. It is volitional, not emotional. That's point one. There's principle number two I think Jesus teaches us about outrageous love. It is unilateral. It's not reciprocal. It is unilateral. It goes only one direction. It's not reciprocal. If we are to love our enemies, we must do so with kind of a a divinely inspired indifference to their response. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need to have no care that they respond in a certain way to you. If you are praying or forgiving or treating kindly because you expect to change your enemy, and then if you're, you're keeping an eye out for that change in behavior and it doesn't come through, you will be disappointed. Agape doesn't work that way. It is not quid pro quo. Jesus says, I want you to love, do good, bless, pray for, give to, and forgive your enemies without any thought about whether they'll do anything nice in return. I wonder if you see how important this is. If you act in hope of receiving something in return, 
you're only driving yourself into deeper bondage to your enemy. If they don't respond with the kindness that you had hoped, then you're going to have more despair, more disappointment, more heartache, and maybe even anger. If, on the other hand, you offer acts of kindness freely, with no expectation, they can't disappoint you again. They can't control you again. In fact, in a sense, you actually, by deciding to act kindly regardless of their response, you actually gain control over the situation. It's kind of the ultimate control. Do you see the freedom in that? And it might even drive them a little crazy, which is just a bonus as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so outrageous love is volitional. It's not emotional. It is unilateral. It is not reciprocal. And here's the third point, I think. It's impossible. It's impossible. We can't do it. Our sinful human nature is so steeped in the juices of self-preservation. It's not possible for us to love and pray for and bless and give to and forgive our enemies. It's just not in us. When I watch news accounts of horrible things that are being done by horrible people, and they are un increasingly unspeakably wicked these days, I go all Old Testament inside. Maybe you do too. I mean, I want justice. I want payback. I want vengeance. This thing that Jesus asks of me to love people I want to hate and who treat me hatefully, it is impossible in my own strength. Except I'm not doing this in my own strength. The Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians once wrote, it is no longer I who live, do you know the rest of it? But Christ who lives in me. Let's say it again. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I do not have it in my spirit to respond lovingly to my enemies, but Jesus has it in His spirit too. And His spirit now lives in me, and if you love Jesus, lives in you too. The answer here, as in every aspect of our Christian journey, is total surrender. To admit, Lord, I cannot do this. I don't want to do this. I don't even want to want to do this. But you are Lord, and so I surrender to you. You will have to do this work for me and in me because I can't do it on my own. To love one's enemy is an act of utter grace. And that is the most Christian word. Not love, grace. It is the most Christian word. And grace is a pouring out of blessing upon those who deserve contempt. We are saved not because God looked at us and, and saw what great souls we are. Despite our absolute corruption, God still loved us and wanted to redeem us anyhow. That's grace. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production. We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online 
to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you and God bless.